You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus, tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is a Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information I thought that I would start today's podcast a little story about my father's dad. He passed away in 2014 at the age of 108. My grandfather was born Abraham Litvak in Poland, and while he was still very young, his father emigrated to the United States in search of work. The plan was that once my great-grandfather became established here, he would arrange for my great-grandmother and my grandfather to come to the United States. But that was never to happen. My great-grandmother never heard back from her husband, so she left my grandfather in the care of family while she made the long trek to the United States in search of my great-grandfather. What she found wasn't good. My great-grandfather had met another woman, and soon my great-grandparents were divorced. But she still had one really big problem. My grandfather, he was still back in Poland. So she asked family members if they could bring my grandfather to the United States, but not a single family member wished to move here. She did, however, find a family friend who was planning to come to the United States, and he agreed to bring my grandfather with him. Now, my grandfather said he was either three or five years old when he made the journey to the United States, but my mom always told me that he had to have been five years old. That's because his memory of the journey was just so intact. It's been at least a decade since my grandfather told me the story, but I do remember him telling me that at various points he remembers that family friend pushing him along in a handcart that was filled with straw, that the friend had to pay off German officers at the border crossing, and at one point he had to hide and remain quiet so the guards wouldn't detect him. His trip across the Atlantic took weeks, and for the rest of his life he always spoke proudly about how amazing it was to see the Statue of Liberty for the first time as his ship entered the New York Harbor. You may be wondering how, if my grandfather's name was Abraham Litvak, that my last name ended up being Silverman. Well, according to my grandfather, he went through public school in New York City, which he said back then was up through 8th grade, as Abraham Litvak. When the Great Depression hit, there was public outcry that illegal immigrants were stealing American jobs and my grandfather needed to provide proof that he was here legally to get work. That was when he learned that when he came through immigration at Ellis Island, the man who had brought him here didn't know my grandfather's real name. But being a friend of the family, 
he did know my great-grandmother's maiden name. That was Silberman. Silberman with a B. So he registered my grandfather as Jack Silverman. And that would remain his name for the rest of his life. So in my family, the Silverman name starts with my grandfather and ends with my brother and myself. That's because neither of us had sons, so there's no one to carry on the family name. And I'm asked all the time if I'm related to this Silverman or that Silverman, but the answer is always no. To the best of my knowledge, there are only seven people currently using the last name Silverman, and that includes myself, that I'm related to. Which brings us to today's story, which is about another Silverman. In this case, a guy named Jacob Silverman. And, as you can probably guess, I am almost certainly not related to him. This new Silverman that I'm introducing here was born on April 1st, 1885 in Lithuania. Due to Russian persecution of Jews, he emigrated to the United States in 1904. His wife, Liesel, followed a short time later, and the couple ultimately settled in Hatfield, Pennsylvania, which is about 30 miles or 48 kilometers northwest of Philadelphia. Jake was, in fact, a literate man in his native tongue, but like so many other immigrants, his spoken English was a bit rough, and he could neither read or write in his new language. He worked as a laborer on farms, and eventually he was able to save up enough so he could purchase a farm of his own. Fast forward to June of 1922. That's a little more than 17 years after the couple's arrival to the United States, and Jacob Silverman was suddenly front-page news across the nation for breaking the law. And just what crime did he commit? Murder? Kidnapping? Spying? It was none of these. Jake Silverman was guilty of, you're going to love this, he was guilty of owning a dog within the state of Pennsylvania. Well, to be more specific, at least this is how the press reported it, his dog was guilty of, quote, belonging to Jake. Huh? What? How could it be illegal to own a dog? I'll try to explain, but I think we need to back up a bit first. You see, Jake was the proud father of seven children. In order by birth, they were Fanny, Rebecca, Minnie, Martha, Samuel, and Esther, all of whom were born by the time the story broke in the news. Another child, Morris, would be born about a year later. Well, one day, while traveling through the country with daughter Rebecca, the two came across a man with a cute puppy, which was a mix of part Mastiff and part St. Bernard. Of course, Rebecca immediately fell in love with the pooch, so Jake agreed to purchase a dog for five bucks. They about $62 today. Well, if you would make the choice today, the two chose to name their new family member Dick. And for the next couple of years, Dick would remain a loving part of the Silverman family. Of course, he grew to be tremendous in size, but he was as gentle as a lamb. Everything was going smoothly with Dick until Montgomery County Game Commissioner Jeremiah Reinert learned that the Silvermans may possibly own a dog. So he hopped in his car and he drove right out to their farm to see if this was in fact true. And once he confirmed that the Silvermans did own a dog, Reinert had just one simple question for Jacob Silverman. Are you a citizen? 
Well, Jacob was an honest man, and he said that he was not. And with that confirmation, Dick the dog was handed a death sentence. This is because the Alien Dog Law of 1915 prohibited any non-citizen within the state of Pennsylvania from owning a dog. It didn't matter if the dog was for hunting or was for companionship. If you owned a dog and you weren't a citizen, the dog had to die. I could read you the law in its entirety, but that would almost certainly put you to sleep. So here are just a few highlights of Pamphlet Law 644, which was approved on June 1st of 1915. Quote, It shall be unlawful for any unnaturalized foreign-born resident to hunt for, or capture, or kill in this commonwealth any wild bird or animal, either game or otherwise, of any description, excepting in defense of person or property. And to that end, it shall be unlawful for any unnaturalized foreign-born resident within the commonwealth to either own or be possessed of a dog of any kind. Each person violating any provision of the section shall, upon conviction thereof, be sentenced to pay a fine of $25 for each offense or undergo imprisonment in the common jail of the county for the period of one day for each dollar of fine and cost. It goes on to say that the dog, quote, shall be either killed in a humane manner and disposed of by the owner, or shall be turned over to the nearest agent of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals to be put to death in a humane way. Ouch. Dick the dog was as good as dead. Either Commissioner Reinert was going to shoot him, or the local SPCA was. One has to wonder what the rationale for this unusual law was. Well, that's difficult to ascertain, but a good place to start would be with the passing of the Alien Gun Law of 1909. It forbid any unnaturalized citizen from owning a gun or a rifle. It had nothing to do with dogs. The argument at the time was that there were too many aliens violating the state's hunting laws and that supposedly resulted in a significant decline of game. An estimated 20% of the state's rural population was foreign-born in the early 1900s, so it really should come as no surprise that by taking away their right to own a gun, game conditions improved. Yet hunting conditions did not improve enough. It was determined that aliens living in rural areas of Pennsylvania typically owned dogs, you know, mostly mongrels, and they were the cause. As these dogs scoured the woods in search of food, they would devour ground-nesting birds, chow down rabbits, and basically consume wildlife of all types. This one-two punch of the alien dog law, you know, coupled with the previously approved alien gun law, they were intended to protect the wild birds and game throughout the Commonwealth. The thought that it may be discriminatory, well, that was never taken into consideration. The law, as written, offered no leeway under any circumstances. All that mattered was whether or not the dog was owned by an unnaturalized citizen. If so, there were no ifs, ands, or buts. The dog had to be put down. This seemed very harsh, so soon some basic guidelines were issued to help game wardens make the correct decision. First, officials were required to provide notices to alien residents in English, Slavonic, and Italian. Second, wardens were instructed to take into consideration the location where the dog was found 
and the likelihood that it could cause damage to birds and game. For example, if a dog was living in the city or was found to lack hunting instincts, it was far more likely to have its life spared. And lastly, it was recommended that the owner of the dog should be given three weeks to either give the dog away or destroy it. Yet these guidelines were not the law, and should a dog end up in court, the deciding judge would really have no choice but to follow the rules as written and issue an order to destroy the animal. This was the situation that Dick found himself in. The fight was now on to save his life. During Jacob's initial appearance in court, the magistrate denied a petition to suspend the sentence and grant custody of the dog to one of Silverman's American-born daughters. He did, however, issue a 10-day reprieve so he could review the case. Of course, the law is the law, and it became clear that the Silvermans needed a good lawyer. The man that Jacob turned to was attorney Samuel Conver, and Jake, with the help of the pennies that his daughter Fanny had saved up, paid him a small retainer fee for his services, but in the end, Conver waived all of his fees. So on Friday, June 30th of 1922, Jake, his wife, and all of their children, they were present in the courtroom as Conver appeared before nearby Lansdale magistrate Howard Fisher Borse, and he argued that he should disregard the law and allow Dick to live based on humanitarian grounds. Forget the urgency of war, famine, and the other grave problems that humans as a whole were facing at the time. The demise of Dick the dog would have certainly caused the collapse of the United States. This was a matter of incredible importance as only one man in the country could handle such a weighty situation. The 29th President of the United States, Warren G. Harding. The life of Dick the dog would prove to be the most monumental and important decision that his administration would ever be faced with. Well, okay, I'm exaggerating just a wee bit here. In reality, it was his wife Florence who brought the story to President Harding's attention. While the commander-in-chief was basically powerless to intervene, the pressure of the Oval Office can sometimes go a long way in helping to decide the outcome of a case. In a letter that he penned to Pennsylvania Governor William Sproul, Harding wrote, quote, I think you will have to count this letter a personal one rather than an official communication. I write it at the suggestion of Mrs. Harding, though I am happy to do so because the appeal which greatly stirred her touches me no less forcibly. I enclose you the anonymous letter and the newspaper clipping which came to Mrs. Harding. If the story is correct, a Russian immigrant has a faithful dog which he loves, and because the possession of the dog in some way conflicts with the state law, the devoted animal has been sentenced to be shot. I have tried to put myself, loving a good dog as I do, in the position of this poor immigrant, and I know the perturbation that fills his soul. I once had to have a dog killed that I greatly loved, and I recall it to this day as the sorest trial of my life. I am not familiar with the laws invoked. According to the newspapers, an alien is not permitted to own a dog. Surely there must be some way to comply with the spirit of the law and allow this poor foreigner to retain his treasured animal friend. The president continued, If it came within my executive authority, I would gladly grant a pardon to the convicted animal. 
I suppose there is good and ample reason for a statue which makes his dog an unlawful possession, but I have an abiding faith that the man who loves his dog to the extent that he will grieve for him has in him the qualities which will make him a loyal citizen. Mrs. Harding and I are both pleased to appeal for some form of clemency in this case, and hope this note is not too late to enable us to add our appeal in behalf of both Silverman and his dog. Governor Sproul immediately telegraphed Judge Boris, and he also wired the following message back to the president. Quote, Please tell Mrs. Harding that I have asked the magistrate at Lansdale to delay action regarding Dick Silverman until we can look into all the questions involved. I guess we can save the dog. But was this enough? Could the intervention of the state governor and the president of the United States save the life of a dog? It did. Dick the dog was allowed to live and the $25 fine was dropped. But there was one big catch. The Silvermans would not be able to take their beloved friend home. Dick was placed in the care of the Pennsylvania SPCA, that's a Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, with instructions to find him a new home. Almost immediately, Dick's nemesis, that's Game Commissioner Reinert, he filed a complaint that Magistrate Boris had acted illegally and that Dick should be put down. Boy, does this guy have any compassion at all? On July 7th, the SPCA Secretary William T. Phillips and Agent Frederick Carter took Dick to his new home. He was turned over to a farmer named John L. Eberts. He just happened to have been a personal friend of Jake Silverman. Eberts agreed to take good care of Dick until Jake was granted his citizenship. On that same day, Silverman took the customary oath and filed his papers to do just that. With the help of his daughter Fanny, he planned to study hard for the next two years as he prepped for the examination in English, which was required to gain citizenship. Meanwhile, State Game Commissioner Secretary Seth Gordon penned a letter to Magistrate Boris on July 12th, get this, requesting that the $25 fine be reinstated and collected from Silverman. Well, Governor Sproul wasn't taking any of this. He quickly intervened. Quote, under the authority vested in the governor, any fine or forfeiture incurred by Jacob Silverman in the case brought before you, wherein he was charged with the unlawful possession of a dog, is hereby remitted. And with that statement, the story of Dick the Dog disappeared from the press. Now, the 1930 United States Census indicates that Jacob Silverman had become a naturalized citizen. And, best of all, the story ends well as Dick was returned to the Silverman family and died in natural causes six years later. By avoiding the death sentence dictated by the alien dog law, Dick was clearly lucky, but many others were not. For example, in 1918, 127 people were convicted of violating the law. One can only guess that at least that many of their dogs were shot to death. In 1920, 200 dogs were put down, generating more than $3,500 for the state from the collected fines. That'd be over $43,000 today. So I guess the big question is, is the law still in effect? Well, the answer to that question is a definite no. You see, as time went on, the alien dog law was enforced less and less. But the final nail in its coffin occurred on July 31st, 1956. 
That's when a six-year-old man named George Welkoff of Hellertown was sentenced to 32 days in jail for failing to pay a $15 fine. That would be about $138 today. In his case, he owned a German shepherd puppy named Hector. George had arrived to the United States in 1951 after the communists killed both his wife and son. Hector, his dog, became his only companion. But with George in jail, Hector was placed in a 3-by-6-foot cage at the Hellertown Dog Pound. For those using the metric system, that's about 1-by-2 meters. After the story appeared in the newspaper, Widener, Pennsylvania resident A. Vincent Lewin took it upon himself to get George out of jail and to get the law changed. Quote, I immediately paid his fine and cost totaling $35.80, even though I had never heard of him before that time. Lewin then proceeded to pen a letter to Governor George M. Leader, along with 260 additional Pennsylvania state senators and assemblymen, requesting that the law be repealed. Lewin received angry phone calls threatening him with bodily injury, but he continued to champion for Welkoff's cause. He even took it upon himself to care for Hector with the understanding that he would be returned to George Welkoff as soon as legally possible. Both Lewin and Hector looked on as Governor Leader signed the repeal of the law on April 5, 1957. As promised, Hector was returned to George immediately, but the story did not end well. On Monday, August 3, 1959, George returned home to find nothing but Hector's frayed collar. Sadly, four-year-old Hector and another dog were shot dead the following night after the two had killed 14 chickens at a nearby home. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. As long as the vacation season lasts, there will be many times when the whole family will be able to be together, relaxing with a treat like the taste treat of a Snickers candy bar. For a Snickers bar is one of those rare little pleasures that everyone in the family can enjoy, right from the moment you first bite into that fine milk chocolate. Then with each taste, your teeth sink through the thick milk chocolate coating, the golden layer of smooth, creamy caramel, packed with whole, freshly roasted peanuts, and the soft nougat center, richly flavored with fresh peanut butter and real malted milk. All melt together in each enjoyable mouthful to give you that rare taste blend you will find only in a Snickers bar. When you want a special taste delight, have a Snickers. That commercial for the Snickers bar is from the August 16th, 1947 episode of the radio show Curtain Time. The show began on WAMQ in Chicago back in 1935 and eventually moved into syndication on various networks. The show was running on the NBC network at the time that this particular episode was recorded. The last episode of Curtain Time was broadcast in 1950, so it had a good 15-year run. As for Snickers, it was the follow-up to the wildly successful Milky Way candy bar that had been introduced by the Maro Bar Company. Today we know it as Mars Incorporated. It took three years to perfect the Snickers bar and it was finally introduced to the market in 1930. Within one year, Snickers became the second most popular candy bar in the United States, with the Milky Way being the most popular. 
The cost for both bars was five cents each back in 1930. That would be about 75 cents today. With a newfound fortune from Milky Way sales, Frank and Ethel Mars decided to purchase a horse farm in Tennessee to breed racehorses. Can you guess what they named the farm? The Milky Way Farm. Big shock there. Anyway, Ethel's favorite horse was named Snickers, but sadly Snickers died before the introduction of the company's new candy bar. And lacking a good name for the new product, Snickers was chosen to honor their beloved horse. You may not know this, but the Snickers bar was marketed for years in the UK as the Marathon Bar. The name was changed to Snickers on July 19, 1990. To ensure a smooth name transition, the company marked all bars with statements like internationally known as Snickers or powered by Snickers. As for those fun-sized mini Snickers bars, they were introduced in 1968. Today, more than 15 million Snickers bars are produced daily, and that one brand alone is responsible for more than, you're going to love this, it's responsible for more than $2 billion in sales annually. Wow. So here's a question for you. Perhaps you're familiar with the Internet Movie Database website. You know, it's a great place to go to learn everything and anything about a particular movie. Now, if you've visited the site, you're probably aware that all the movies are rated on a scale of 1 to 10. Well, that's not exactly true. There is one movie that's not rated on the same scale. It's rated on a slightly expanded scale based on a famous scene from that movie. Can you name that movie? Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of the podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In other news, here are three stories that all have something to do with animals. In our first story, a sanitary inspector in London visited the Platts Lane home of 80-year-old Rachel Willard after receiving numerous complaints from her neighbors. They had claimed that Mrs. Willard had not only been harboring rats in her garden, but that she was also providing them with food. She was treating them as pets. She refused admittance to the inspector and pushed two letters under the door, one of which read, quote, I refuse admittance to your officer because I consider as a free citizen I have fulfilled my duty to the little country rats who came into my garden. Dear little voles. And also because I object to being considered the scapegoat of Platts Lane. Mrs. Willard was ordered to appear before a judge at the Hampstead Police Court in London. After the inspector testified that her home was infested with ordinary household rats, Mrs. Willard began her cross-examination of the inspector. I guess the judge had heard more than enough, and he opted to adjourn the case. History was made on February 18, 1930, when a tri-motored Ford airplane flew as part of the exhibitions at the International Aircraft Exposition in St. Louis. That's because this plane was transporting cargo that required extra special care. So special, in fact, that a portion of the plane had to be reconstructed to handle this cargo. 
and it was big and heavy and alive. It was a 1,000-pound or 453-kilogram Guernsey cow named Elm Farm Ollie. She was owned by Sunnymead Farms in Bismarck, North Dakota. Valued at $2,000 or nearly $30,000 today, Ollie has the honor of being the first cow ever to fly in an airplane. Not only was she the first cow ever to fly, Ollie also became the first cow ever to be milked during a flight. Along with Ollie for the flight were four reporters, a newsreel cameraman, a radio announcer, and two attendants to care and milk Ollie. And just why would anyone place a cow on an airplane in the first place? Basically, to demonstrate that prized cattle could be transported from one place to another by air. At an elevation of 5,000 feet, or about 1.5 kilometers, Ollie soared through the clouds at an estimated speed of 135 miles per hour in her specially prepared stall. That's about 217 kilometers per hour. As she munched away on hay, Wisconsin resident Ellsworth W. Bunce became the first man ever to milk a cow mid-flight. Wow, quite an honor, huh? As the plane descended, 25 half-pint containers of milk were parachuted down to the crowd which was watching from below. One quart was set aside to be presented to Charles Lindbergh. He was scheduled to arrive at the show a day or two later. And in our last story for today, 27-year-old South Korean Chung Nam Kim may have been one of the luckiest guys ever. And I mentioned the story to one of my classes today and they loved it. You see, he had been working aboard the Liberian ship, the Federal Nagara, as a deckhand and painter. At some point between 2 and 3 a.m. on Friday, August 22nd of 1969, Kim found himself suffering from a bad headache. So he decided it would be best to go up on deck and grab some fresh air. Suddenly, his foot slipped and Kim fell into the Pacific Ocean. Of course, no one witnessed his plunge, so he was as good as dead. Kim started swimming for land, but it was obvious there was no way he could ever make it. Quote, I was very afraid. I thought that I was dying. I couldn't think of anything else. I was too exhausted. Just at the point when he's about to give up, he spotted something in the water. Quote, I thought I was dead, and then I touched this thing. And I first thought it might be a shark, and then I saw it was a turtle. So I held on. So he threw his arm around the turtle and paddled slowly with the other arm. After about two hours of swimming with the turtle, he spotted what looked like a ship. It was the Swedish freighter Citadel, which was 113 miles or 182 kilometers from the Nicaraguan coast at the time. He started waving his arms frantically to get their attention. And at 4.45 p.m. that Friday, the crew of the Citadel spotted a man, you're going to love this, with his arm around a large turtle, and they pulled him out of the water. Kim was taken aboard, and almost immediately he passed out from exhaustion. So could this be a whale of a fish story? My guess is most likely not. Both the captain and the crew of the Citadel said that they had seen Kim clinging to the turtle. One crew member even managed to snap a few photographs of the rescue. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for the answer as to which movie is not ranked from 1 to 10 on the Internet Movie Database. As you listen to the following audio clip, just imagine a lead guitarist named Nigel Tufnell being interviewed about his custom-designed Marshall amplifiers. This is a top to uh, you know what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to eleven. Look right across the board, oh. eleven, oh, eleven, and most of eleven, the and then amps go up to ten. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not ten. You see, most most blokes, you know, be playing at ten. You're on ten here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on ten on your guitar. Where mm. can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere. Exactly. What we do is, if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? I put it up to eleven. Eleven. Exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to eleven. That audio clip is from the classic 1984 mockumentary This Is Spinal Tap, which, if you've never seen it, is a movie about the fictitious British band Spinal Tap. This particular clip that you just heard has become so famous that the Internet Movie Database has ranked the movie from 1 to a maximum of 11, you know, so you can get that extra push over the cliff. In reality, the movie is only ranked out of 10 points, but 11 seems so much more appropriate in this case. What few people know is that This Is Spinal Tap is currently the subject of a $400 million lawsuit. The movie's actors and creators, that's Rob Reiner, Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Harry Shearer, are suing rights holders Vivendi for unpaid royalties. Now, most people know that the movie didn't do very well in theaters originally, but it has had a fantastic afterlife. Yet its four creators have received very little in the way of royalties. According to an April 2017 Bloomberg article on the lawsuit, Vivendi's accountants claim that between 1984 and 2006, the royalties amounted to $81 for merchandise sales. That would mean they only sold $1,620 worth of merchandise in that time. And they also got $98 from soundtrack sales. Now divide that four ways and each of its creators get next to nothing. If one considers a large number of video cassettes and DVDs that must have been sold since 1984, never mind how much is currently brought in each year from video streaming and officially licensed merchandise, it appears that those Hollywood accounts may be, you know, cooking the books. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see as to the outcome of the lawsuit. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. Just a reminder to like the show on Facebook, and if you haven't done so already, 
I would greatly appreciate it if you could head on over to iTunes and leave some positive comments about the show. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Be sure to go to recordedhistory.net to learn about all the quality history podcasts that the network has to offer. Anyway, as always, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.